Yeah, get into your posture. Make sure that you're comfortable. That you're not consciously holding any part of the posture in place. Cross the legs in such a way that you don't need to consciously keep them there. Place the hands in such a way that you don't need to consciously hold them in place. Elbows not too far, not too close to the body. Shoulders even, leveled. Your back straight. But comfortable and natural. Center your head and neck so you don't need to consciously hold your head in place. The eyes can be opened or closed or half opened, whichever you find more conducive for you. Make sure your mouth, teeth and tongue are simply in their natural places. And bring your attention to the breath. with only the intention to observe, not to make the exhalations any different than they are, nor the inhalations. And as you observe the breath, calmly sweep the body to make sure that you're comfortable. And if you need to make adjustments, make the adjustments. Try not at the same time to keep your awareness on the breath as much as possible. Now keep focusing on the breath. Not trying to chase away distractions. Don't have the intention to force your mind to focus. Just 
Hold on to the intention to follow the breath. Follow it for about 21 cycles. Bring to your mind a reason you wish to meditate and make it a very strong conviction. Use it to strengthen your faith that you have within you all that you need to achieve your goal. Think of the meditation that you're about to do. And knowing the dangers, 
seek refuge. That you may be protected and also that you may succeed. And let your refuge taking be organic and real, not just reciting some words. and set your ultimate purpose to such a strength that it will remain throughout the meditation as a sign, as a post as something to encourage you, to strengthen you throughout the meditation And with an entrusting mind, invoke the presence of the means through which you will achieve your goal. Your personal gift from all the Buddhas, your teacher. Focus on the teacher at the level between your eyebrows, having a sense of the teacher's presence about an arm's length distance from you. And recall how the presence is bright. It doesn't matter if your conviction is only the size of a speck of dust. Whenever you spot it, hold on to it as though it's a life raft. The means to end all your problems is right in front of you. The means to achieve your highest aim is right in front of you. And as soon as you grabbed that speck of faith with it prostrate
Entrust yourself to it. Entrust yourself to the teacher. Show your gratitude. Make offerings. And let the offerings also be real. Offer things which are really difficult for you to give up. And offer them realistically. The baggage of guilt and remorse, although we hold on to it because we think it is virtuous to do so, it doesn't help, only holds us back. So sincerely regret applying all the other forces, taking refuge promising not to repeat the act and sin think of an action to do to remedy the situation as a makeup activity so the baggage of guilt can be removed can use that you can be free from it
Now rejoice to help the mind reach refinement. Rejoice in goodness everywhere. Your goodness, the goodness of others. And rejoice especially for those for whom it is difficult to do any good. Rejoice in their efforts. Ask the teacher to teach. Beg the teacher to stay. Bring your attention back to the meditation that you're about to do and direct the positive potentials you've thus gained through these preliminaries, directing them to help you succeed in your meditation.
Hey, bring your attention back to your breath. Keeping your attention on the breath, slowly become aware of your body once more. Hello all. Wow, it's been like a, it's been like a long time. <laughs> uh, whoever was able to call all of you up and t- say that uh, the class starts over again, I have to say, <laughs> the person did a good job. <laughs> because uh, it was just, I don't know, last week I said I'm coming back. <laughs> well, thank you very much. If you're too cold or... We have some blankets in the back, you can wrap yourself up if you want, okay. All right. Where did we leave off last time? (laughs) As I remember, we were talking about the eight verses. And, I don't know, did you do your homework? (laughs) We were to meditate on the first verse, coming to truly appreciate, to cherish sentient beings. If you look at the first verse, the mind training uh, tradition, first they begin by enticing our already selfish attitudes, by telling us, uh, think about the wonderful things you will get once you do this, once you do that. Then you get interested and then you sort of like uh, trick your selfish mind to sort of destroy itself. Ask your selfish mind to say, oh, it's going to be good for me if I help others, if I start thinking more about benefiting others. And sometime later, in your training, you're supposed to get rid of this immature attitude. You're not supposed to be thinking about, what am I going to get from this anymore? You're supposed to get to the point where, in the mind training, where all you think about is benefiting others. And it is even said somewhere, Later, I'll tell you now, (laughs) in the mind training that if you even consider about the wonderful things you're going to get when you become a Buddha, or when I become a Buddha, I have my paradise, I have a wonderful body, (laughs) it'll be made of light, I have wonderful people around me, I'll know this much and that much. If If that becomes your motivation later on, if it's still your motivation later on, and then it's, you're sure, definitely preparing yourself for failure. But somewhere later, you're, not supposed to, you're even supposed to consider that it may be that when I get to the end of my spiritual path, I'll be stuck in samsara. That the only way to get rid of, to get help sentient beings become free of samsara is for me to become stuck. Like somehow we have to make an exchange. I'll take all their sufferings, whatever degrees of suffering that they are enjoying, so that they, and everything that I've, all the wonderful things that I've gathered, all those wonderful seeds, so I can, so I can one day 
end up with a paradise. I have to give it to them. Unless your mind training gets to that point where you're willing, and that's where also in the Mahayana teachings, where the teaching sort of gets a bit confusing, where it says you're supposed to give up on Nirvana. You're not supposed to aspire to it. You're supposed to give up on Buddhahood. It's where the concern and the attitude for the others is so intense that you have no concern for your own welfare. This just doesn't play a part in your path anymore. Yes, you continue to... It's not like you, you think, well, me stay in samsara, so you deliberately do things that makes you stay in samsara. I can tell you, if you're not doing anything to get out of samsara, you're naturally doing things to stay in samsara. Okay. It's an automatic machine. It knows quite well how to perpetuate itself. Even to the point where of sneaking into your spiritual path and all you're doing is perpetuating samsara and you think you're going towards Buddhahood. Especially when you think, oh, I better be good because when I'm good, I'm going to have this heaven, I'm going to have this beautiful body. That's, that's good in the beginning when you're immature, when they have to trick your selfish mind so you can get rid of that, that habit. But there are certain points you have to grow up and totally abandon all selfish attitude. Even thinking that I'm going to be a Buddha, I'm going to have all these beautiful things. Okay. Even that you have to let go of. And the only thing that you should be focusing on is what would be a benefit for others? What would be a benefit for others? What would be a benefit for others? And sometimes what may be a benefit for others may appear to be not of any benefit to you. And if you love sentient beings enough, just like the mother who's, who jumps into arm's way to protect a child. Okay. No consideration for, oh, by, when I save the child, the child's going to be very grateful, and then when she grows up, she's going to make sure I don't go to an uh, old person's home. Okay. <laughs> so because of that, I will save the child's life. <laughs> I'm sure the mother doesn't do that, go into that kind of state. But we sort of do the same thing, you know, when we're thinking, oh, I become a Buddha, I have this paradise, and then, you know, I invite some beings also up there. <laughs> okay. Now, how do you get there? When you keep going back to the sutras, you know, those writings were just said to be the writings, the sayings of the Buddha. The Buddha, it seems to me, even when he's talking about things which are very deeply philosophical, things which are, which are the topic of debates, you know, 2,500 years after he's gone, and still scholars, great scholars, are in different camps. They don't really come to a one point where they say, oh, yeah, we agree. But the main thing that seems to be uh, behind all, all these, whenever the Buddha speaks, is practice. And practice what? Meditation. And everything else seems to be uh, focused around that. You're supposed to study so that to help your meditation, to enrich your meditation. And by enriching your meditation, then the topics that you study will become even more profound. And you're supposed to correct your behavior 
so that you can enrich your meditation also. So everything is for the enrichment of meditation. So I don't know why, maybe it's because of the degenerate age and uh, we have the, the arrogance of, of thinking that the more knowledge I, I have, the more I can show it off. So we accumulate a lot of facts. Nagarjuna says this, Chandrakiti says that, but Buddha Palita says this, but he disagrees with uh, Master Selimba. Master Selimba and Krishna Pala and in your mind you're able to hold all these different contradictory presentations of the ultimate nature of reality in your mind and you're very proud about it because you're a great scholar. And you're able to say, this is the true thought of Nagarjuna, this is the truth of Aryadev. This is what uh, Master, whoever said, this is what he really said, this is what is his true intention. Why? Because they say so in that book and in that book. And I read that other book also. So you become a, a great reciter of books. And one person says, I think they're all right, even though they're all contradictory. And he said, but you didn't read the, the seventh chapter on, uh, of, <laughs> of his exposition on uh, the true nature of the spider or something like that. <laughs> okay. That's why he said they all agree. And supposedly, all these masters were supposed great meditators who have achieved what you're seeking to achieve. And then when they're describing what you're seeking to achieve, they all disagree with each other. So it makes you think, did they really see what I'm seeking to, to, to see? Who would dare say Master Asanga was not intelligent? Who would dare say that the great, call him, call him, sometimes he's called the great Naga, the great dragon, uh, Nagarjuna, didn't really have much realizations. And yet, this great dragon Nagarjuna said things, and this great Asanga wrote things that seems to be contradictory. So, everything that is written is just for your guidance. I'm sure your interest in spirituality, in the path, in Buddhism, you weren't just looking to be a great scholar. Okay. Perhaps you have a, the bent to have a, a great mind of a scholar, of a great scholar that way you can describe to the finest elucidation the great thought of Nagarjuna. Jason Kappa, for example. It is said that no one explained the thought, the intention of of the great master Nagarjuna better than Jeton Kappa, except those who disagree with him. <laughs> okay. So let's say the great Jeton Kappa actually wrote the true intent, elucidated the true intention of Master Nagarjuna. I guess reading it is, doesn't help much. Because those who disagree with him disagree with him because they read it. So the only way to really find out, I guess, is to get really into the topic, meditate. Then maybe you can find out 
maybe I guess he was wrong in this point or that point. Now, I guess I started on the path as a, well, not started, but somewhere along the path I became a proud Gelupa. We are, you know, we are scholars. Not only are we scholars, we are great scholars. <laughs> and we have the books to prove it. <laughs> and you read this book and you read that book and you say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But the reason for getting into the path is not being satisfied. You're still suffering. The fundamental issues are not uh, dealt with. Yes, you can recite the wonderful things that uh, Jason Kappa wrote and Kedub J commentaries on that and then later commentaries on that and you can even you, and you're such an even great, great scholar that you can refute Mipam will refute Jason Kappa you can refute all the points that uh, Mipam refuted about his refutation about Jason Kappa but are you being spiritual? Are you dealing with the fundamental issues? And the only way to, to get to satisfaction is to see it yourself. Not to read it directly yourself, but to see it yourself. I'm not sure who says it, but some people, I think, some people or somewhere it was written that on the path, scholars always disagree, but yogis always agree. And the scholars can be in the same classroom and they're disagreeing with each other. And the yogis can be in totally different continents, different practices, and they're agreeing with each other. So, not that scholasticism should be thrown away, because how are you going to find out about those paths, <laughs> reading what the scholars wrote? But don't stay with the scholars. Because even yourself, you may have to disagree with them. Now, Meditation is not really about acquiring something new. You can call it reclaiming natural abilities. Every single thing that is talked about in meditation, and when I'm saying this, I'm not saying it just to be to flirt with you, to give you encouragement so you can take it up, but it's a fact and you can prove it for yourself. You say to yourself, oh, I can't meditate because I don't know how to concentrate. I don't know, when you hear such things as, you can withdraw your senses. You know what withdrawing your senses is about, right? While you're conscious, focusing on something, you're not hearing anything. You're not even seeing anything. You've shut down your senses. You say, oh, that's impossible. Well, I'm going to tell you something that you um, probably, you already know about, or you know it already, but you never actually thought about it. Maybe you thought about it, but you do it every night. <laughs> every night, you go to sleep, you withdraw your senses. So you have that ability already. And I can't visualize to save my life. 
my eyes or I see the back of my eyelids. And I've been trying to do this for a long time. I just can't do it. What's a dream? Somehow somebody put a movie projector inside your eyelid and you're watching something. And the contents of the dreams, who made them? Who is making them? Who is focusing on them? Who is completely believing that they are real? And while you're watching your movie, with all its colors, sounds, and all the senses in there, someone can come into the room and try to wake you up and they can't. Your senses are withdrawn. And you hear about those wonderful, like when you go to Tantra, or these are secret. You know, if I tell you I'd be breaking a, a vow about secrecy, and it seems like it's some exotic thing that, you know, when you find it immediate, it's like you're acquiring something that you have no idea about. You can come to know those things without reading a book. You can become aware of those things, completely become aware of them and manipulate them without ever even hearing someone describing them to you. And it's, this is the West, before even you heard the word chakra or channels in a class, you probably read about it a long time ago. So it's not totally unfamiliar to you. But when you start reading about it, that's when it gets confusing. Because the color chakra says the chakras are, look like this. Then the highest tantra, uh, Sogha tantra says, no, they look like this. This is all Buddhism. And then there's one school of Buddhism says there's no such thing. <laughs> and then you get, get out of it and then you see that well, it seems like the non-Buddhist schools were also talking about chakras. And then they, they say, no, it looks like this. So what do they look like, those things? Does it really matter what they look like? Or are they really things that, that you can actually see? Or are they just, you know, some sort of a meditation trick to get you f to focus on something? And if it doesn't really matter, then what is this thing about keeping the lineage, keeping the tradition intact? Without saying it indirectly, I'll say beware of superstition and beware of falling into it under the guise of keeping tradition. You're the one who's suffering. The method must fit you. All those things that seem to be so exotic, that seem like you will have import, that's a lie, okay? <laughs> They're not exotic. You don't have to import them. You go through them actually every single day. Pratyahara. Wow, what a very sexy word, huh? You do it every night. <laughs> Dhyana. Another sexy word, it seems like. You have to say them in sexy words for you to have interest in them? No, you already have an interest. Yes, you focus. You know how to focus. The thing is to do it consciously, deliberately.
Yes, you know how to withdraw your senses. You have to do it deliberately. That's the practice. That's why I say you have to reclaim your abilities. You know how to visualize perfectly. You can visualize a dot and you can even visualize a universe. So, the path now is just getting back to nature, getting back to your natural abilities. Just really don't force anything. You already have those abilities. And mindfulness then becomes a very, very important element. And you can say it's just catching yourself. Try to catch yourself already doing it. When you go to a movie house to watch a movie, you sit there, there are all these people making noise, there are all these people around you, all those heads. And there's a screen all the way, all the way up front. And once you get into the movie, what happens? The people disappear. Did it vanish? Did it go away somewhere so that you can be alone with the movie? Or somehow you had the ability to block them out. And you were able to be selective in what you were seeing. Just the movie. And there was a point in what you're watching the movie, you're, able, you're even able to not be aware of your body sitting on the chair. That's why at the end of the movie, that's when you say, oh, this was uncomfortable. My neck hurts. <laughs> and when you were watching the movie, you weren't aware of that. What did somebody, what, when you came into the movie, you sat on the chair and said, oh, everybody move out because he has to watch a movie and that's how the people were able to, to not be there anymore. Or they, uh, they bring a doctor to give you, a, to anesthetize you so that you can feel the neck, the pain in your neck. So somehow, we're able to do these things, but we do them unconsciously. So, after we are able to reclaim these natural abilities, then we can go and look at reality and see it for what it is. Then we can say, sorry Nagarjuna, I mean you're a great scholar, but I disagree with you on this point. <laughs> it's not what I saw. Or you can say, wow, no one described it better than Nagarjuna. Because I saw it. And you can say, oh, I see why Mipan disappeared with, dis disagreed with Jason Kappa. He was looking at it this way. So, another so. <laughs> to get those abilities back into your conscious control, you have to have patience. And even within the time of the Buddha, when people were, I think it was, I think it was Ananda, I'm not sure. It was Ananda who was reputed to have mastered all levels of meditation in just one, one week. When I say all levels of meditation, I mean, that which we have been trying to achieve for the past, I don't know, 10 years, me. <laughs> you know, step zero. <laughs> he went nine levels beyond that in a week. Okay? That's because of you know, special circumstances, the time of the Buddha, I guess, you know. So, incredible things like that were happening. But nowadays, I guess because it seems like we are so degenerated, all you hear about is, 
You don't even hear about people trying to reach step zero. What do we do? We distract ourselves with rituals. We distract ourselves with reciting prayers. Prayers that takes five hours to recite. And by the time you get to the, you know, the, the second hour, you just feel frustrated and you're happy to do three. Yes, there's some power, there's some very good advantage in reciting prayers. Believe me, it's not the advantage, it's not the goal that you're seeking. I'm not saying do away with prayers. You know, those long sadhanas that you, are, you swore you know, that you will go to hell if you don't recite them every day. Yeah, out of fear, recite them, okay? <laughs> I don't know if they will cast you to hell if you don't recite them, okay? But I know this. <laughs> if you don't try to get to step zero, and then step one, and then step two, so that you can have the, the tool of a meditator. Because you don't have the tool of a meditator yet. Until you know how to consciously withdraw your senses until you can make yourself focus when you want to focus. Until you're able to have that, you will not get to where you want to. You may prepare yourself so that next life, you may, have, you may get closer, and the next life get closer, until one day you, may, you can become Nagarjuna, one trillion lives from now. You can become Asanga, you can become Ananda, and then all those years, all those millions and trillions of lives of effort, maybe. Because you have no idea what you're going to be doing in the next life. You may find yourself born into a so-called civilized country, but you have no interest in what they have to offer you. All the, good, all the prayer did was to get you in there. So if you really want to work, do the prayers. <laughs> but make sure you set aside time to get to really step really get to step zero and that will take time it will take effort after the years and months or I don't know how long you've been trying to meditate can you honestly to yourself say I can keep my mind quiet for one minute No, 60 seconds. Keep your mind completely quiet. That's step one of step zero. <laughs> okay. Whatever prayers you're doing, direct them to help you to get to that stage. And, of course, you don't need step zero to become a great scholar. And there are great benefits of becoming a great scholar. You will be venerated for hundreds of years, <laughs> even thousands of years. And people will be debating about what you really meant for even a lot, lot more longer than that. But for you, what will it have done for you? And not only what will it have done for you, what contribution? other than those great books which you have contributed to the consciousness as a whole.
have you proven to yourself certain fundamentals and just by living them others are affected by it you don't have to tell them anything they are affected by it sorry for the long talk that's not really what I <laughs> intended to talk about <laughs> So the uh, mindfulness part, start with that. And not only when you sit down, but throughout the day, try to be mindful of what's going on, what you're doing, what you're saying, what you're thinking. And don't let it be an obsessive, a destructive obsession. Like if you miss the minute, then you, you know, you're almost ready to you know, jump out the window or something. Okay. <laughs> as much as you can, if all you can be mindful of during the day is just one event, now okay, that's good. Then the next day, you can be mindful of two events. Okay. But if you can say you're only mindful of one event in a week, then maybe next month, you can be mindful of two events in a week. Okay. The thing is, know where you are, and then just honestly proceed from there. Don't imagine, don't, don't create illusion for yourself. Be realistic about it. Unless your pain is an illusion and you're just pretending to be suffering. Okay, then you can pretend about this, the spiritual path also. Okay. And when you sit down, at least for the first minute or for the first five minutes, just be mindful. And then say the prayers, you know, rush to them or whatever you have to do. So you can don't have the guilt of, oh, I'm going to go to hell because I, I forgot to recite. <laughs> just for the first five minutes, just be mindful. Just be aware of what's going on. What's going on in your body, how comfortable it is, how uncomfortable it is, how, how wild is your mind. All these things. Then, just with, the, just with that alone, then you can start to be aware of those things that Nagarjuna was talking about, maybe. Then you can say, oh, I'm sorry, now I'm, uh, you described the fifth petal the wrong way. <laughs> That's not what I saw. <laughs> okay. Oh, it doesn't have six petals. It actually has four. One of them looks like it's split in two. <laughs> Okay. And when you know, then the spiritual path will be as real for you as your pain is real for you. Okay. All right. <laughs> right. Get into your posture. <laughs> and sorry for dragging so long. If there is anything that I can give to you, is just to make the path real. I think that's very important. And sometimes you may even be, find yourself not even knowing that you're seeking faith. Not faith. Fame. What are you doing seeking fame? Not because you intended to, to, look, to, to, to go after fame. It's just that you lost faith. And because you lost faith, you say, well, fame, that's the next easy thing to get. Let me get it. Let me go after it. And it's not, it's not a conscious choice either. 
Sometimes you sat down and you say, okay, I can get that, let me get fame. You just find yourself in there. After I'm gone, then they will say I was a great meditator, even though I never got to step zero. But they'll say it anyway. So, get into your posture and try, let's try for five minutes. See if you can discover something. Now really be comfortable. If the cushion is too low, bend it. Sit in such a comfortable way that you don't have to consciously worry about your posture. Now let us consciously go to the legs and make sure that that's the state, that's the status. You're not consciously holding it in place. Do the same with the hands. And the elbows. Now the shoulders. The back. The head and neck. The eyes. Mouth, teeth, tongue. As you follow the breath, use the breath as a guide. Do like a scanning of the body, head to foot. Back to head. And when you realize there's a point where you're actually consciously holding in place and let it go. I'm not going to tell you what to look for. 
you are aware of your hair, if you are aware of the clothing on your skin, keep allowing those different awarenesses to come in and continue. What else are you aware of? Sense the teacher in front of you. Ask the teacher to come to the crown of your head. Feel and sense the teacher above your head. Aspire to become one with the teacher. And bring that sensation to your heart.
with intensity as much intensity as you can wish that all beings be free from pain that they meet with happiness Dedicate the merits of this meditation to the achievement of your ultimate goal. Bring your attention back to your breath. Slowly become aware of your body again. Thank you very much.